Revived Thoughts is a production of Revive Studios. This is Troy and Joel, and you're listening to Revive Thoughts. Talk about preachers of the present day. I would rather a thousand times be five minutes at the feet of Christ than listen a lifetime to all the wise men in the world. Every episode, we bring you a different voice from history and a sermon that they delivered today. We're going to listen to a D.L. Moody sermon. It was preached in the late 19th century. I love Moody sermons, Troy. Yeah. Uh, long listeners will know I'm a big fan of the Moody sermons. Oh, I mean, honestly, doing a DL Moody sermon, I was putting this research for this episode, the script together, and I was like, man, it has been a long time since we've had a DL Moody sermon. And Joel, do you remember one of the earliest things we did together on Revive Thoughts? Do you remember this as we went? I do. Uh, in the middle of the night. <laughs> which probably wasn't safe into the middle of Kansas city on a snowy day with camera and like tech equipment. And we were recording ourselves walking around me like, this is the spot where DL Moody preached his last sermon. And I was thinking about that. I was like, wow, we're really lucky. We didn't get in trouble for doing that. Like nobody tried to the rob Lord us. The Lord will protect us. We were okay. Yeah. The, the spot that DL Moody preached his last sermon was, it was a building here in Kansas city where, where I live currently. Uh, it is now a parking garage with a park on top. And uh, it's a lovely park, but um, it was neat to be, to stand in the last place, though you would never know it. No plaque, no, no, uh, no way to commemorate it. Uh, it was neat. It was cool. No, it was cool. So doing this DL Moody was bringing back that memory of being cold with you in the middle of the night, walking around, making probably not the wisest decision, but it was super fun to do. If you haven't listened to that episode, it's one of our early DL Moody episodes. If you want to listen to a much, not I won't say much younger, because I mean, it's not like we sound like we're teenagers or anything, but, you know, a younger me and you doing this with with that on on. um on what on on location on location moment that we were able to bring to the world. Uh now, Joel, we have had some positive responses, some reviews and stuff since we last talked to each other. This one, uh, I, I love this one. It's an Apple podcast review, and it just says, Eric with a C. And it says, Bolton 8, ek, his username is Bolton 8, ek, I don't think that's his, his God-given name. I don't think that was the name his parents gave him, Bolton 8, ek, but if it is, it's a lovely name, of course. Yeah, you remember two months ago when we said somebody just left the name Eric? And I said, if you want to just yeah. leave us an Eric, you can do that. So this guy did that, which is hilarious. Uh, but we're also, I'm now <laughs> I'm now excited and, and also nervous. his username is, that- is the... The Bolton the eight, yeah. But now I'm nervous. They're gonna be like new people coming on. They're gonna be like, why is what's why is what is this show about Eric? And um, I'm actually really annoyed at that because I had a I had a friend of mine reach out to me and they just said Eric out of nowhere. And I know like a couple Eric's in real life. And I was like, is there something going on with an Eric? And they were like, no, just Eric. And I was like, what are you, what are you talking about? And like in your own episode, you said I could just, call, I could just tell you Eric. And I was like, oh, I'm so mad. I forgot that. I was so frustrated with myself <laughs> for not catching what they were doing. So if you do not know what we're talking about, two or so months ago, somebody left a Spotify comment that just said Eric with a K. And uh, we have no idea what that means. But if you see anywhere out there in the Revive Thoughts, you know, atmosphere that people are talking about Eric, we're just remind, we're just remembering and trying to understand what that Eric Spotify comment meant. And that's what that means. So made me laugh. Yeah, Be like better think, than me. I, I like to think of uh, Eric comments as like a shorthand for a, a positive compliment. You know, 
I there Eric you. you. Yeah. I uh, Eric to you. <laughs> that was very Eric of you to say that, Joel. I agree. Yeah, yeah. I, I I like yeah. that. And to be honest, I I love the idea that we revive thoughts. People are slowly getting like a secret language. Like you know, you got a real revive thoughts fan if you if they if you can look at yeah. them in the eye and be like, you're super Eric today, and they know what you're talking about. That's and, and you would yeah. be doing better than me when my friend just sent Eric to me twice, and I was like, <laughs> are they okay? What's happening? So Is you would be ahead of the curve. Yeah, it was really, I was like, um, how are you doing? And they were like, you don't get your own joke. I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I didn't get that. So if you're a real one, you understand what Eric means. And if you don't, you got to go back like two months and find that episode where we talked about Eric. Okay. We had another comment as well. Uh, this was this actually was a personal message. So in, when the Woodrow Wilson episode dropped, I mentioned a guy who about a year ago had written me and told me how our story, um, this was from an earlier episode, a year before, Minister to Monsters, how that story had given them the courage to do something really, uh, really hard, which was go and share the gospel uh, in a prison where they... Uh, their own uh where their own daughter's rapist they said was located and that they didn't want to do it they were part of prison ministry but when they heard uh, that episode it gave them the courage to do that and i still am blown away by that and i was just i couldn't believe our show was used to give somebody the, the courage to do something like that well I, i'm assuming that he may have listened to that episode because he actually sent me an update kind of filling me in on what happened afterwards and he did run into this gentleman that he had a problem with and he did share the gospel with a group of people. And he told me that um, even though that person specifically that he had run into, there was no heart change. Uh, there was another person there that day that did give their life to Christ, that the passion and um, willingness of just hearing the gospel from him had had moved on his life and someone came to Christ. So it's pretty awesome that the Lord has used, a, you know, I mean, the Lord is using this guy. Obviously, he's the one doing the hard work, but I just feel really... Uh, I don't touch really just can't it's, it's amazing that revive thoughts was used to encourage somebody and through that encouragement the gospel was shared and through that sharing the gospel somebody is in heaven it's going to be in, no he's not dead yet so he's going to be in heaven with us someday um, and that's just amazing so I wanted to share that story that he kind of updated us I wanted to share that with you um, so praise the Lord praise the Lord that he's moving and yeah that was just something that was really really cool all right, doing an episode on D.L. Moody, back to where we are. D.L. Moody. We have done episodes on him before, but we're going to kind of do a full walkthrough of his life because I think it's been about two and a half years since we've talked about him. So we have a lot of new listeners who have probably not heard much about him in a while. Yeah. Yeah, you've probably heard the name D.L. Moody. Uh, Dwight is what the D stands for. Troy, without looking, what's the L stand for? Yeah, you know, I, I did look already. Lyman is Lyman. But if you had asked me... Earlier today, I would not have known the answer. I'd have been like, Dwight the L Lyman. stands for live, living. <laughs> <laughs> Dwight Livin Moody. Dwight <laughs> Lyman Moody is his full name. I was, I wonder, you know, like, why do people, they're like your J.R. Tolkien's. Like, what, yeah. at what point in your Lewis, life do you decide yeah, G.K. to Chesterton. rock the initials as your actual name? And I think sometimes it happens because there's someone else with a similar name and you don't want to like, you don't want to be associated with that guy. So you like throw some initial mm -hmm. action out there to kind of, I'm different than him, but I don't know of any famous Dwight Moody's. So I don't know why DL Moody would have maybe done that. Yeah. Well, you know, maybe, maybe not in our day, maybe back in his day, there was like a famous uh, candy store clerk that was uh, Dwight <laughs> Moody that he really just didn't want competition with. He was born in 1837 in Massachusetts, and he was the sixth of nine children and has quite a sad upbringing because when he was only four years old, his father died 
And about a month after that, his mother gave birth to twins. And so imagine being four years old, uh, one of nine children, and your mom just having newborn twins in the middle of the 19th century. Uh, Very difficult situation, especially since the family didn't have a lot of money to begin with. And now that the father was gone, uh, they were certainly broke and debtors came to collect and essentially overnight um everything was taken from them their their debt was such that debtors even ended up taking the firewood that they had stored up from the winter uh taken by creditors and that night the mother had them all gathered into bed and they prayed to god that the lord would provide for them uh and the next morning the uncle came by to visit and brought them some firewood so that they could uh, warm the house so to deal with such a harsh situation uh, the mother often had to send the children other places to kind of room and board. They would work different farms of the neighborhood, and those n- neighbor farmers would, you know, repay by I- giving them some food and a place to stay. And I do imagine they were working, but I also kind of imagine the neighbors understood, like, we're doing this to help this family because this woman's, you know, a widow and has nine kids. At one point, Moody was at a neighbor's house, and he came home and told his mom, I I can't stay here anymore. Uh, All he has fed me is for the same meal for 19 days in a row. The meal was cornmeal and milk for 19 days. I just imagine how awful that would be. If you're a mom, if you're a parent, you are trying to take care of these kids and your son comes to you and says, I've had the same meal for 19 days, cornmeal and milk. Mom, don't make me go back. How heartbreaking that must be. And even more heartbreaking was the mom said, hey, he's feeding you. You have to go back. You this That was the deal. If you're working, as long if he stops feeding you, let me know. But if he's feeding you, I need you to stay there. I'm sorry that you have to eat cornmeal and milk every single day. That just, I mean, how desperate and rough is the situation when you're, when that's your, your answer from your mom. I mean, if any of you, if anybody has kids, you know, that, that, I mean, or you've ever been a kid, I mean, you, you can just see this is a hard situation. Because of this life of working for farmers, Moody never got fully educated in school. He got about basically a fifth grade education level. Uh, But his mother was determined that she could give him as much education as she could. She enrolled the kids in Sunday school so that ones uh, they would basically spend the weekends together. But their Sundays were busy in Sunday school and getting nightly devotions where they could together as a family. Uh, Sundays were absolutely church time. Her kids worked at farms during those weekdays, like we said. So on Saturday, maybe they could all hang out together. But Sunday was all about that church. They would go to the morning service. They would stay the entire day. The kids would all do Sunday school. They would stay for the evening service. And they spent just all of their Sundays completely around the church. And at the time, Moody was not saved. Yet his mother uh, would was just, just impacting this, building this life around the church for them, I think. And this is happening in the middle of Massachusetts, in the middle of nowhere. I always think about the pastor who's basically raising, helping raise these kids. You know, he's there taking care of them on Sundays, running them all. I, you have to think about that guy who's just kind of ministering to this sad family. They, you know, that you know that the, the husband dies, a rough situation. There's nine kids run all over the place. He's probably, there had to probably be times when he was tired. That had to definitely be times when the mom was tired. You're looking at the situation and going, this is rough. And you had no idea that you were encouraging and ministering to what would eventually be one of the most famous evangelists America ever produced. 
Yeah, enter the next phase of his life, the next era of his life. At the age of 17, he went to work for his uncle's shoe store in Boston. You know, get away, get you know, get out of the house a little bit, go to Boston, work with his uncle. His uncle didn't mind having uh, Moody work for him, but one of his requirements was that he went to church with them. And, uh, you know, Moody was fine with that. I'll, I'll do what I got to do type of thing. He went to the church and he tried to uh, go forward to be a member, but his basic lack of knowledge of the Bible was so extreme that he could not pass a basic biblical knowledge test that this church required for membership. So that's kind of a humbling moment when you said, you don't, you don't know Sunday school level material. Uh, and he was sent back, but later his Sunday school teacher would come and visit him at the shoe store. And this Sunday school teacher, uh, unsung hero of Moody's life, he was set on making sure D.L. Moody knew that Christ loved him and that Christ would forgive him. Uh, so they would have these conversations at the shoe store, and shortly after, uh, D.L. Moody would be converted. He gave his life to the Lord, and uh, the effects of this were seen throughout his church, and later his Sunday school teacher would say of him, quote, I can truly say, and in saying it, magnify the infinite grace of God bestowed upon him, that I have seen few persons whose minds were spiritually darker than was his when he came into my Sunday school class. And I think that the committee of the Mount Vernon Church seldom met an applicant for membership more unlikely ever to become a Christian of clear and decided views of gospel truth, still less to fill any extended sphere of public usefulness. <laughs> Not a not a big endorsement. <laughs> not, yeah, uh, not, this kid not, was not the... this kid was a, a <laughs> terrible idiot kid. But well, look what God look how God changed his life. That is really that is what that is like. I um I really we did not have high hopes for him. We were really worried about this one. Is reading between the lines what that says. Moody was already a member of the YMCA, and that's because at the time the YMCA is not like it is today. It's not just like a gym where you go you know hit the treadmill or maybe play basketball. But uh, it it was a uh, it would have sports attached to it, but it was really focused on educating people and teaching them the gospel back then. It was originally about that kind of thing. And so by being a member of the YMCA and going to those uh, serv- those events and meeting at their you know their locations, you could hear you could get uh, actually a schooling and you know grow get some education. So he was already kind of about that. And when he heard them teaching about Jesus, he was excited about it too. Moody was so excited that he really threw himself into these two areas of his life, the church and the YMCA. Now, Moody's life actually hit kind of a crossroads at this point. He's become a Christian. He's converted after that that experience with the Sunday school teacher. But he is also kind of growing in his business skills. And he's um, become a really good and really experienced shoe salesman. His business was flourishing. And he had just a savings, $7,000 in shoe sales. Now, $7,000 in 1860s, I did a quick conversion. And if Google is correct, that's the equivalent of $260,000 in today's money. So that's how much he's saving um, in terms of inflation, how much he's been able to set aside from his shoe sales. And basically, that was enough to get going on on his own shoe stores. He could have really become a big shoe businessman. And he was really well liked in the business community. They all saw a future for him. They saw him as, you know, I want to say a future Rockefeller. I don't know if it would have been that big, but he was, he had a real future. This could have been a thing. And this was a kid who grew up so poor that after 19 days in a row of eating cornmeal and milk, his mom said, go back, right? Like that must have been such a huge temptation for him to go, 
I'm good at business. I can pay for churches and stuff. I should keep going down this road. But he felt like God was calling him into ministry instead. And so he kind of started a mission hall Sunday school on the side to help the poor. And in 1861, he hung up the shoes, as it were. He's, he put down the shoe ministry, the shoe business. And he said, no, I'm going to do the ministry full time. I think this is what God is calling me to do. And like I said, just for somebody who was growing up as poor as he was, to have that kind of success he was going to have in business and to put it aside for ministry, he's only 24 years old. That is, that would have been, I, I think that most people would say that would be a really tough thing to do. And yes, of course, you've got to do what God calls you to do, but let's not, let's not deny that I mean, Moody was really making a big sacrifice. Yeah, so he started to run the Sunday school there, and he did so intently he wanted everybody to come so he i mean he was giving out free candy he was giving out free pony rides he was leaning the kids songs even though historically he was understood to be a pretty bad singer that's how you know his heart was in it and when he wasn't leading a sunday school and working with children's he was fundraising with rich people to to raise money for the cause he was known to be very brash but also very passionate and a Sunday school uh, ended up gaining such reputation and being so impactful that in 1860, a newly elected Abraham Lincoln came by just to visit, just to check out. Hey, I hear you got a neat Sunday school. By the way, I'm the president of the United States. That's pretty neat. In his work <laughs> I hope he at, said it just like that. Hey, I'm the president. Yeah. It's pretty neat. I, <laughs> that, I mean, that's what I'd say if I was president. His work at the YMCA flourished as well. He, he had several plans that they would execute, one to hand out tracks to everyone in Chicago. That was a, a big success. Uh, he started a noontime noon prayer meeting. He started a Friday tea devotion. He started English classes for recent immigrants. And eventually, uh, people finally convinced him to become a pastor himself. Uh, so, th I mean, this was about a four-year stretch that he was um, working in the Sunday school era before shifting gears into becoming a head pastor himself. That would have been 1864. And he's doing all of this. Again, this is Civil War is popping off at this time as well. So uh, he's visiting battlefields. He visited the Union side nine times, including some pretty big battlefields, the Battle of Shiloh and the Battle of Stone River. He was present at as a chaplain, serving as a chaplain. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We've been enjoying a podcast called Compelled. It uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. A great testimony they have is Ron Atkins, who at the age of 19 was sentenced to almost 500 years in prison. He was violent, angry, and his fellow prisoners nicknamed him Rhino, and he became a leader in a white supremacist prison gang. Ron's violence eventually led him to solitary confinement for over a decade, where he was told he would remain until he died. Condemned by society, separated from humanity, Ron knew that he was utterly alone. Or was he? Listen to Ron Adkins share his entire story of a redemption on episode number 49 of Compelled. And there are many other great stories ranging from missionaries, addicts, prisoners, or just regular people who've had their lives transformed by Jesus Christ. 
Search for Compelled on your favorite podcast app or by visiting compelledpodcast.com. Again, that's compelled with an E-D, podcast.com. After the war, he really put his focus into his, you know, church that he had started there in the middle of it. Uh, For seven years, things went pretty well, and he even formed a connection with uh, the man Ira Sankey, who would become his future gospel singer. If you know much about his revivals, that was a big part of it, was that you'd hear him sing and you'd hear D.L. Moody preach, um, and he would accompany him on all these trips. In fact, I think in one of our earlier D.L. Moody episodes, I think we actually played a clip of Ira Sankey singing like it would have been what you would have heard i man i don't remember if that's true but i definitely think we did if not you can find i think it on youtube somewhere so a little something to go look up but i'm pretty sure it's actually one of our episodes so there you go then disaster struck uh this story is one that has always stuck with me it's a story about a fire and it connects we we've talked there's an episode where we talked about spurgeon has a big fire moment that changed his life and dale moody has that same thing we talked about it before but it's just this horrible moment where dale moody was really really worried that he was emotionally manipulating his audience to come to christ he didn't want to do that he didn't want to give them an emotional he wanted them to be certainly rationally sure that they were going to come to christ And so he basically told his audience, hey, square your affairs this week. Think about your thoughts and come to to church next week ready to give your lives to Christ. I am ready to see you next week. I want you to not make an emotional decision. Make this purely on a rational basis. Well, as he's doing that, as the songs are playing in the church, you know, church, the, the bells of the city start ringing. And before he even gets home, Chicago has going is, is caught on fire. The great Chicago fire that burns down just a ton of the city. Um, his church gets burned down. His uh, Several of his congregants lose their homes, lose even maybe their lives. I think some of them do. And he never, ever preaches before that church again. He never gets another opportunity. That church is gone and lost to the great Chicago fire. And that just stuck with him for the rest of his life. Like I could have given the gospel to people who quite literally would never get a second chance. And I didn't because I was worried about the way I would do it. And he was like, man, I, uh, it really hit him hard. It really broke him. And he, he was like, I'm never doing that again. If I'm in front of people, I'm sharing the gospel. I'm not telling them to wait. I'm telling them right now because you really don't know if you have another minute. And that story has always stuck with me. I mean, just, uh, can you imagine going through that? And can you imagine what that would just do to you? And what it, if you came out of that, okay, as D.L. Moody does, how much that would just give you a passion to realize every audience could be your last opportunity to share the gospel. At this event, um, after this, people try to convince him to stay in Chicago, but he kind of feels like he needs a change of pace, and I'm sure he does. It was really hard to go through that, I imagine. Um, so he starts kind of traveling and ministering in different areas. Um, from such a terrible, like from such humble beginnings, our, our poor man, the widow, you know, the widow of a mother to a successful shoe businessman to then a successful pastor who's even met the president now to nothing. Um, he's back to just square one almost, but he, he knows some people. So he decides I'm going to go visit England and I'm going to go visit Europe basically and do a little tour there. He goes to Scotland and I didn't know this, but they actually, I always thought it was Spurgeon who gave him his first door, but it was actually Andrew Benar in Scotland, who opened the door to him first, heard about him, heard great things, and gave him a chance. And when he did really well in Scotland, uh, uh, Spurgeon heard about him in the UK and then gave him an opportunity in the UK to kind of do the same thing. So after getting both uh, Andrew Benar and Charles Spurgeon to kind of open their doors and give him opportunities, uh, D.L. Moody was well on his way. And he forms a friendship with these men. He forms especially a close kind of friendship with Charles Spurgeon. And when he comes back to America after doing this tour in the UK, he comes back as a rock star. Now, instead of just, you know, a couple hundred people wanting to hear him or see him, he's got 
tens of thousands of people wanting to hear the man that had impressed the United Kingdom and had done such a great work in the revivals over there. Now, I also learned something new. I don't know if you'll find this interesting, but uh, I, having done children's ministry, I've heard of these things where people basically use colors where they'll be like, you know, there's this color white, you know, black and, and red, and the black means sin, and the red means the blood of Jesus, and white means righteousness. I didn't know this, but apparently this was developed from a sermon that Spurgeon did. Sir, Spurgeon had a bunch of, he was preaching to a, like hundreds of orphans, probably Mueller's orphans, and he wanted to do it in a way that could reach them. He didn't know if they could read, so he just pulled out like three colors and was like, white is the red is this black is this do you understand well this was such a good idea that people were like we need to make this into a book and when they did moody was like let's add one more color to this book let's make it gold and gold stands for heaven and that way they know where they're going after they die and then spurgeon or moody started to promote this book everywhere and a lot of sunday schools especially overseas curriculums have added this book called the wordless book it's just a book of colors for you to share the gospel with um, around the world. It's been used around the world. And Hudson Taylor specifically added it to their sermons and their curriculums that they used in the China Inland Mission because they found that that just, hey, these pictures are so easy to just understand for people that they use them when they were preaching in China. I just thought this was an interesting little connection between these men who knew each other, working together for something that maybe you've seen in a Sunday school when you were younger. Maybe you've heard somebody do that same thing. This is where it came from. It came from a Spurgeon sermon, was promoted by Moody, and was eventually landed in a lot of missionaries' hands and around the world. Just kind of different things like that. By the way, Moody did meet Hudson Taylor too, and he, he they loved each other, and Moody uh, became very intentional towards raising support for international missions after running into Hudson Taylor. All right, so to wrap up his life here, uh, when most people think of Moody, when they hear the name Moody, what they're probably going to associate it with is his Bible Institute, the Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. Uh, still, to this day, a beacon of Christian education that uh, you can go to um, to get Bible degrees. Moody was passionate about... Uh, education. And so, uh, you know, the Bible Institute was obviously his kind of focus on that, but there were lots of different other revival and kind of pop-up movements that he would do to to raise volunteers to go overseas or, or things like that. Uh, there was one moment where he started what he called the gospel wagons, which were like wagons that go around and sell theological books and literature to people around. Just again, that idea of bolstering theological education, which is uh, so interesting when you look at his life as a whole. Uh, this man accomplished so much. Um, he would eventually die, as Troy and I mentioned, 1899, nine days before the turn of the century, uh, preaching a tour throughout there that he was sadly unable to finish because of his his death. Some would quantify the impact of Moody's life by his gospel literature that he wrote. You know, we we can see evidence of that reaching over 100 million people, which is pretty mind-blowing to think about. Um, you know, others would point to his revivals, uh, his family legacy. It all came from this man who, again, dropped out of school, had roughly a fifth-grade education at the time of coming to know the Lord. And he says in his own words, quote, why did God choose such a poorly educated, sometimes self-indulgent man? Let's listen to uh, this sermon. It's titled, What Do You Think of Christ? I suppose there's no one who has not thought 
some about Christ. You've heard about him and read about him and heard men preach about him. For 1,800 years, men have been talking about him and thinking about him. And some have their minds made up about who he is, and certainly some have not. And although all these years have rolled away, this question still comes up and addresses each of us today. What do you think of Christ? And I don't know why it should not be thought of as a proper question for one man to put to another. If I were to ask you what you think of any of your prominent men, you would already have your mind made up about him. If I were to ask you what you think of our president, you would speak right out and tell me your opinion in a minute. If I were to ask you about your governor, you would tell me freely what you had for or against him. So why shouldn't people make up their minds about the Lord Jesus Christ and take their stand for or against him? And if you think well of him, why not speak well of him and put yourself on his side? And if you think ill of him, and believe him to be an imposter, that he did not die to save the world, why not lift up your voice and say you are against him? It would be a happy day for Christianity if men would just take sides. If we could know positively who was really for him and who was really against him. I mean, it's of very little importance what the world thinks of anyone else. All the great ones, all the noble people of this world must soon be gone. Yes, it will matter very little what we think of them. Their life can only interest a few. But every living soul on the face of the earth is concerned with this man. The question for the world is, what do you think of Christ. And I do not ask what you think of the Episcopal Church or of the Presbyterians or the Baptists or the Roman Catholics. I do not ask you what you think of this minister or that or this doctrine or that. I only want to ask you what you think of the living person of Christ. I would like to ask, was he really the son of God, the great God man? Did he leave heaven and come down to this world for a purpose? Was it really to seek and to save? I would like to begin with the manger and follow him up through the 33 years he was here upon earth. I should ask you, what you think of his coming to this world, being born in a manger, when it, would have, it could have been a palace, why he left the grandeur and the glory of heaven and the royal retinue of angels, why did he pass by palaces and crowns and dominion to come down here alone? I would like to ask what you think of him as a teacher. He spoke as no man had ever spoken. I would like to hear what you think of him as a preacher. 
I, I wish I could bring you to that mountainside that we might listen to the words as they fall from his gentle lips. We talk about preachers of the present day. I would rather a thousand times be five minutes at the feet of Christ than listen a lifetime to all the wise men in the world. He can use any image to explain truth. There's a sower, a fox, a bird, and he gathers truth around them so that you cannot see a fox or a sower or a bird without thinking of what Jesus said. There's a lily of the valley. You cannot see it without thinking of his words. They toil not, neither do they spin. He makes the little sparrow chirping in the air to remind us of his preaching. And how fresh those wonderful sermons are and how they still live today. How we love to tell them to our children and how the children love to hear. Tell me a story about Jesus. How often we hear that from them. How the little ones love his sermons. There's no storybook in the world that will ever interest them like the stories that he told. And yet how profound he was. How he puzzled the wise men of his day. How the scribes and the Pharisees could never understand him. Oh, don't you think he was a wonderful preacher? I would also like to ask you what you think of him as a doctor. A man would soon have a reputation as a doctor if he could cure as Christ did. No case was ever brought to him that was a match for him. He had but to speak the word, and the disease fled before him. Here comes a man with leprosy. Lord, if you will, can you make me clean, he cries. I will, says the great physician. And in an instant, the leprosy is gone. The world has hospitals for incurable diseases, but there were no incurable diseases with him. Now see him in the little home at Bethany, binding up the wounded hearts of Mary and Martha, and tell me what you think of him as a comforter. He is a husband to the widow and a father to the fatherless. The weary may find a resting place upon his breast, and the friendless may reckon him their friend. He never changes, he never fails, he never dies. His sympathy is forever fresh, and his love is forever free. Oh, widows and orphans, oh, sorrowing and mourning, won't you thank God for Christ the Comforter? But these are not the points I wish to take up. Let us go to those who knew Christ and ask what they thought of him. If you want to find out nowadays what a man is, you inquire about him from those that knew him best. And I don't wish to be partisan, so we will go to his enemies and to his friends. We'll ask them, what do you think of Christ? 
We will ask his friends and his enemies. If we only went to those who liked him, you would say, oh, he is so blind, he thinks so much of the man that he cannot see his faults. You can't get anything out of him unless it's in his favor. It is a one-sided affair altogether. So we will go, in the first place, to his enemies, to those who hated him, persecuted him, cursed and slew him. And I'll put you in a jury box, and I'll call upon them to tell us what they think of him. So first among the witnesses, let us call upon the Pharisees. We know they hated him. Let us put a few questions to them. Come, Pharisees, tell us what you have against the Son of God. What do you think of Christ? You hear what they say. This man receives sinners. What an argument to bring up against him. It's the very, it's the very thing that makes us love him. It's the glory of the gospel. He receives sinners. If he had not, what would have become of us? Have you nothing more to bring against him than this? What is one of the greatest compliments that was ever paid to him? Once more, when he was hanging on the tree, you said this of him. He saved sinners Himself he cannot save. And so he did save others. But he could not save himself and save us too. So he laid down his life for yours and for mine. Yes, Pharisees, you have told us the truth for once in your life. He saved others. He died for others. He was a ransom for many, so it is quite true what you think of him. He saved others, himself he cannot save. Now let's call upon Caiaphas, the head priest. What do you say of him? Let him stand up here in his flowing robes and let us ask him for his evidence. Caiaphas, you were the chief priest when Christ was tried. You were the leader of the Sanhedrin. You were in the council chamber when they found him guilty. You yourself condemned him. Tell us, what did the witnesses say? On what grounds did you judge him? What testimony was brought against him? He has spoken blasphemy says Caiaphas. He said, Hereafter you will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. And when I heard that, I found him guilty of blasphemy. I ripped my mantle and condemned him to death. Yes. All that they had against him was that he 
was the Son of God. And they slew him for the promise of his coming for his bride. But now let's summon Pilate. Let him enter the witness box. Pilate, this man was brought before you, and you examined him. You even talked with him face to face. What do you think of Christ? I find no fault in him, says Pilate. He said he is the king of the Jews, just as he wrote it over the cross. But I find no fault in him. Such is the testimony of the man who examined him. And as he stands there, the center of a Jewish mob, there comes along a man elbowing his way in a hurry. He rushes up to Pilate, thrusting out his hand, gives him a message. He tears it open and his face turns pale as he reads, Have nothing to do with this just man, for I have suffered many things this day in a dream because of him. It's from Pilate's wife. Hear her testimony to Christ. You want to know what his enemies thought of him? You want to know what a pagan thought? Well, here it is. No fault in him. And the wife of a heathen. A just man. And now look. Here comes Judas. He ought to make a good witness. Let us address him. Come, tell us, Judas, what do you think of Christ? You knew the master well, and when you sold him for 30 pieces of silver, you betrayed him with a kiss, you saw him perform those miracles, you were with him in Jerusalem and Bethany when he summoned up Lazarus, you were there. What do you think of him? And I can imagine him as he comes into the presence of the chief priest. I can hear the money ring as it dashes upon the table. I have betrayed innocent blood. Here's the man who betrayed him. And this is what he says about him. Yes, my friends, God has made every man who had anything to do with the death of his son put their testimony on record that he was an innocent man. Let us take the centurion who was present at the execution. He was in charge of the Roman soldiers. He had told them to make him carry his cross. He had given orders for the nails to be driven into his feet and hands and for the spear to be thrust in his side. Let the centurion come forward. Centurion, you had charge of the executioners. You saw 
that the order for his death was carried out. You saw him die. You heard him speak upon the cross. Tell us, what do you think of Christ? Listen, look at him. He is smiting his chest as he cries, Truly this was the Son of God. I might go up to the thief upon the cross and ask what he thought of him. At first he railed upon him and reviled him, but then he thought better of it. This man has done nothing wrong, he says. And I might go further. I might summon the very devils themselves and ask them for their testimony. Have you anything to say of him? Why, the very devils called him the Son of God. In Mark, we have the unclean spirit saying, Jesus, you Son of the Most High God. Men say, oh, I believe Christ to be the Son of God, and because I believe intellectually, I will be saved. I tell you, the devils did that, and they did more than that. They trembled. But now let's, let us bring in his friends. We want you to hear their evidence. Let us... Let us call the prince of preachers. Let us hear the forerunner, the wilderness preacher, John. Save the master himself. No one ever preached like this man. This man who drew all Jerusalem and all Judea into the wilderness to hear him. This man who burst upon the nations like a flash of a meteor. Let John the Baptist come with his leather girdle and his hairy coat. And let him tell us what he thinks of Christ. His words, though they were echoed in the wilderness of Palestine, are written in the book forever. Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. This is what John the Baptist thought of him. I bear the record that he is the Son of God. And no wonder he drew all Jerusalem and Judea to him, because he preached Christ. And whenever men preach Christ, they are sure to have plenty of followers. So let us bring in Peter, who was with him on the Mount of Transfiguration, who was with him the night he was betrayed. Come, Peter, tell us what you think of Christ. Stand in this witness box and testify of him. You denied him once. You said with a curse, you do not know him. What is true, Peter? Do you know him? Do you know him? And I can imagine Peter saying, it was a lie that I told him. I did know him. And afterwards I can hear him charging home their guilt Upon these Jerusalem sinners. He calls him both Lord and Christ. Such was the testimony on the day of Pentecost. 
God has made that same Jesus both Lord and Christ. And tradition tells us that when it came to execute Peter, he felt he was not worthy to die in the way his master died, and he requested to be crucified upside down with his head downwards. So much did Peter think of him. But now let's hear from the beloved disciple John. He knew more about Christ than any other man. He had laid his head on the Savior's chest. He had heard the throbbing of that loving heart. Look into his gospel if you wish to know what he thought of him. Matthew writes him as a a royal king coming from his throne. Mark writes of him as a servant and Luke as a son of man. And John takes up his pen and with one stroke forever settles the question of Unitarianism. He goes right back before the time of Adam. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. And look into Revelation. He calls him the bright and the morning star. So John thought well of him because he knew him well. But now let's bring in Thomas, the doubting disciple. You doubted him, Thomas. You would not have believed he had risen, and you put your fingers into the wound in his side. What do you think of him? My Lord and my God, says Thomas. Then go over to the Decapolis and you will find Christ has been there casting out devils. Let us call the men of that country and ask what they think of him. He has done all things well, they say. But we have other witnesses to bring in. Let's take the persecuting Saul. Once one of the worst of his enemies, breathing out threats, he meets him. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me, says Christ. And he might have added, what, what have I done to you? Have I injured you in any way? Did I not come to bless you? Why do you treat me so, Saul? And then Saul asks, who are you, Lord I am Jesus of Nazareth, who you persecute. You see, he was not ashamed of his name. Although he had been in heaven, I am Jesus of Nazareth. What a change did that one interview make to Paul. A few years after we hear him say, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I do count them but dross that I may gain Christ. Such a wonderful testimony to the Savior. But I'll go further. I will go away from the earth into the other world. I will summon the angels and ask what they think of Christ. They saw him in the bosom of the Father before the world was. Before the dawn of creation, before the morning stars sang together, he was there. They saw him leave the throne and come down to the manger. And what a scene for them to witness. Ask these heavenly beings what they thought 
of him then. For once they are permitted to speak, for once the silence of heaven is broken, listen to their songs on the plains of Bethlehem. Behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For to you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. He leaves the throne to save the world. Is it a wonder that the angels thought well of him? Then there are the redeemed saints. They that see him face to face. Here on earth he was never known. No one seemed really to be acquainted with him, but he was known in that world where he had been from the foundation. What do they think of him there? If we could hear from heaven, we should hear a shout which would glorify and magnify his name. We are told that when John was in the spirit on the Lord's day and being caught up, he heard a shout around him 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands and thousands of voices saying, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Yes, He's worthy of all this. Heaven cannot speak too well of him. Oh, that earth would take up the echo and join with heaven and sing, worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. But there's yet other witness, a higher still. Some think that the God of the Old Testament is the Christ of the New. But when Jesus came out of Jordan, baptized by John, there came a voice from heaven, and God the Father spoke. It was his testimony to Christ. This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Ah, yes. God the Father thinks well of the Son. And if God is well pleased with him, so should we. If the sinner and God are well pleased with Christ, then the sinner and God can meet. The moment you say, as the Father said, I am well pleased with him and accept him, you are wedded to God. Won't you believe the testimony? Won't you believe this witness? This last of all, the Lord of hosts, the King of kings himself. Once more, he repeats it so that you all may know it. With Peter and James and John on the Mount of Transfiguration, he cries again, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. And that voice went echoing and re-echoing through Palestine, through all of the earth from sea to sea. Yes, that voice is echoing still. Hear him. Hear him, my friend. Will you hear him today? Listen, what is he saying to you? Come to me, all of you that labor and are heavy laden, 
and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. Won't you think well of such a savior? Won't you believe him? Won't you trust him with all your heart and mind? Will you not live for him? If he laid down his life for us, it is not the least that we can do to lay down our lives for him. If he bore the cross and died on it for me, shouldn't I be willing to take it up for him? Oh, that we have no reason to think well of him. Do you think it is right and noble to lift up your voice against such a savior? Do you think it's just to cry out, crucify him, crucify him? Oh, may that God help us to glorify the Father by thinking well of his only begotten Son. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Revive Thoughts. Today's sermon was narrated by Dustin Garrett. Dustin is an old college buddy of Troy and I's. Always excited to hear from him. He uh, leads worship at Liberty Bible Church. Yeah, Dustin is awesome. We went to Bible college with him way back in the day. And Dustin was the very first person to ever return a sermon for us, I think, or if not the first one, one of the very first persons. When we were still making test episodes five years ago, we sent a script of Dietrich Bonhoeffer and Dustin's return of that sermon was basically like the confirmation that we needed that this show was going to be something. And that sermon, Overcoming Fear, is still one of the most popular, famous sermons we've ever put out. It had a sermon jam made of it like two years ago. That sermon has had a real impact. I one of, I remember very early on, there's a, a, a woman who listened to the show uh, and she said, man, that sermon changed my life. So we, Dustin is awesome. He does a great job. If you want to listen to him, go back to some of our earlier Dietrich Bonhoeffer's. You'll listen to his. Uh, he's got a great passion. He also is the first person that in the show's history to ever read our sermon to a live audience. I think it's only happened once or twice, uh, but he took one of these old sermons and read it in an actual church service, and it was awesome, and it was really cool. So Dustin is great, and we're really thankful for him for reading this episode for us. If you are listening to this episode and you're wondering how can you be supportive of the work that the guys at Revive Thoughts are doing, me and Joel here would really appreciate if you join us on Patreon. Uh, we get almost all of the funding for the show to pay for things that we need comes from Patreon. So if you don't mind going over there, uh, checking out and subscribing to us on there for a little bit. Also, and if you wanted to as well, you can check out our shop. We sell some pretty cool shirt designs that at least from Mars and Missionaries, my wife, uh, she designed some really great stuff, some really cool mugs and some really cool shirts. So you can go check that out as well. This is Troy and Joel, and this is Revive Thoughts. Yeah.